For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, the mid-season NFL Peter King Podcast. And man, is there a lot to talk about at the midpoint of this NFL season. As we're recording this, Paul Burmeister, my NBC pal, and I, uh, we are exactly halfway through the regular season. 136 games have been played. 136 games are to be played in the second half of this season. And I don't want this podcast to be all about history, but I do want to discuss something from the 136th game of the season, the Pittsburgh Steelers' narrow victory over the Chicago Bears on Monday Night Football. Paul, I have to tell you, I had no intention of making this a harangue about officiating uh, because most of the time I find that harangues about officiating are, are fairly useless. There are going to be missed calls and there are going to be calls that you disagree with in the course of every season. You just have to overcome them. But on Monday night, there were three calls in the Steelers-Bears game that really kind of drove me up a wall. And I'm going to start with one that we have a screenshot of that I'm going to explain. So people who are watching this podcast are going to be able to see a screenshot of what I'm about to describe. But basically, with nine minutes left in the third quarter, the Chicago Bears scored a touchdown. Justin Fields threw a short touchdown pass to Jimmy Graham in the end zone. Really a huge play for the Bears because they had been struggling offensively the entire night for the first 35 minutes. So they score this touchdown, but wait a minute, there's a flag. And the flag is for a low block on the right guard, James Daniels of the Chicago Bears, who was called for making a low block against T.J. Watt on the pass rush that was the, uh, on, on the scoring play, the Justin Fields to Jimmy Graham touchdown pass. So I need to explain to you exactly what the rules and the rule clarification was before this year. The NFL instituted a new uh, sanction this year, a new rule this year that essentially says when you are outside the tackle box, outside, say, the tight end box, where your team lines up against the other team, if you go outside the last guy on the end, whether it be a tight end or a tackle, 
If you go outside there, you can't block anybody low. And so it's what it's designed to do. It's designed on both sides, offense and defense, to prevent those kind of cut blocks out in the field that have led to some knee injuries. So on this particular play, James Daniels pulled to his right and he sort of dove to try to block TJ Watt. Now, for those watching this podcast, you're now going to see the screenshot from the game of where James Daniels was. Look at the prone player on the Chicago Bears, James Daniels. He's in the shaded box. You can see him. His entire body, his entire body is in the tackle box. And TJ Watt, he has uh, at least one leg inside the tackle box. James Daniels dives at TJ Watt. Watt either totally evades him or there might have been a brush, but it was not much of a contact and TJ Watt continued his pass rush. So after the touchdown, we see the flag and Tony Carrenti has flagged James Daniels for a low block on TJ Watt. And I'm just going to say, this is not what this rule was intended to stop. It's not intended to stop the play right around the quarterback and in, uh, you know, in the line of scrimmage area. And this was a huge penalty in this game because the Bears moved back 15 yards and had to end up kicking a field goal. So it cost the Chicago Bears four points, that bad call. Paul, I don't know how you saw it and whether you were watching it live, but that one really stuck out to me. I thought it was horrible, Peter. And I all at once really agree with the intent of the rule, the spirit of the rule. I've sat here and watched. I had friends way back in the day lose their seasons and, and careers because of low blocks way outside the tackle box they weren't expecting that were really dirty plays. And the NFL's effort to... to get that out of the game is, I mean, it's perfect. That's what they ought to be doing. But that was just a football play. It wasn't even close to not being a football play that should be expected anytime an offensive lineman pulls, sees an end coming in close to his quarterback, he's been taught, hey, going low is fine. And that move was made well within the box. You could slow it down. And we looked at the freeze frame. You know, maybe it was an inch outside the box. Doesn't matter if it was even a yard outside the box. That was a football play that linemen are taught and that defensive end and outside linebackers, they expect. And to me, that's, that's where the, the uh, rub ought to come in there, Peter. Get the play out of the game where the defender isn't expecting it. He's running downfield. He is in no way thinking about being hit low. That's when he's in danger. He was not in danger there. He knows that that kind of block may be coming. Uh, there was no reason for it at all. And the bigger picture issue to me, Peter, is anytime player safety is involved, the, the, offici- the officials are now erring so far on the side of safety that it's getting in the way of the game. And the late hit to the quarterback, that's coming in as well. It didn't last night, but you see it every week. Calls are made that shouldn't be made there because they're, they're saying it's safety. And that was, to me, the worst example of this that we saw last night. Paul, before the year, I had an officiating source tell me that before the year, Walt Anderson, you know, the new czar of officiating, told officials when discussing this call that it has to be clearly outside the tackle box. He might have used the words 
well outside the tackle box. That was what one officiating source told me he said. But in any case, you know, Walt Anderson basically told the officials it's got to be well outside the box. And now we see this play. Not only wasn't it well outside the box, and not only was he barely touched, if he was touched at all, but that was just an egregious misuse of a rule that may have cost the Chicago Bears a football game. And it just really bothers me that the over-officious nature of how that game was officiated, and it seemed to all apply to, my second beef is, you know, Justin Fields getting hit a couple of times really hard and there being no call, uh, you know, which I think a lot of people look at games and say that, oh, the young kids don't get the calls. There should be no ever thought about that. It's destructive to the integrity of the game that a veteran quarterback is going to get calls differently than a young quarterback. So I don't want to harp on that too much, but that also bugged me a lot. The other one that I think that America woke up Tuesday morning just screaming about is the Cassius Marsh taunting call that uh, basically took away, uh, you know, an end of a series for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the NFL is very lucky that even when the Bears did get the ball in the last couple of minutes of the game, they were able to drive down and score a touchdown. But look, before the season, officials were told, hey, on taunting, okay, if you have to use your own judgment, you know it when you see it, but on taunting, it has to be a clear effort by one player to either degrade or demean another player or another team. And what Cassius Marsh did after sacking Ben Roethlisberger that should have resulted in the Bears getting the ball back with more than three minutes to go in the game with a chance to drive the length of the field and to win the game. What should have happened is that when Cassius Marsh celebrated and kind of flexed toward the Steelers bench, it wasn't anything he said. He's 30 yards away from the Steelers bench, maybe 25 yards away. The field is 53 yards wide. But he's, he's a good 25 yards away from the Steelers bench and he flexed and he celebrated right there. That's not taunting. That is an intense celebration by the guy who just made his first big play of the year in nine games. And when I saw that flag come, came, come out, I, just, I was just outraged. And, and I don't want to make a big deal of Tony Carrenti, the referee, hip-checking Cassius Marsh on his way by because... The call wasn't for that, but that was inexplicable why Tony Carreni did that. But Paul, I know that you played this game at a very high level. You played it at the highest level in the Big Ten. You saw a lot of spirited stuff that happened on the field. And I just wonder what you think when you see that called and a 15-yard penalty be assessed because of it. I go back to the seven words you said a little bit ago about this, Peter, that you know it when you see it. You know taunting when you see it. And the spirit of the rule and why it was put in was to remove those moments where there was 
a player was degrading another player where he took it a level or two too far. And just like with this player safety and all the things being called for player safety and the officials erring on the side of, well, we're protecting a player, so we're going to call it. You're not protecting the game by eliminating a deserved emotional moment. And they're not going to change football in the sense that it's physical, it's dangerous, it's fast, it's emotional. And right after a play is made, negative or positive, people are going to have a response that's in line with what just happened. And they need to figure out the line between a response that is, is understandable based off of what just happened and a response that is embarrassing the game or embarrassing an opponent. And they're erring way too far on the side of protecting, um, protecting this taunting rule. And it doesn't need to happen at all. You know, Paul, uh, what to me is so interesting about everything that we're talking about this morning is that this year there has been more than ever an open line of communication between the replay official upstairs and the referee on the field and also between Walt Anderson and the officiating command center in New York and the official on the field. So last night, and, and let's talk just for one more second about the low block call. Clearly, Walt Anderson and the replay official had to have seen on that play that Correnti overstepped his authority on that play. I think they should have also done it on the taunting call, but they clearly could have done something and said, Tony, you need to pick up the flag. And the fact that they didn't say that, why do you have that line of communication when you can see clearly there's been an egregious error that has cost a team a touchdown? And that is the other part of this that is stupefying, that there's all this communication between New York and the referee, between the replay official and the referee, and they see a call that is so obviously an overreach and they did nothing about it. Look, I could vent about this for a long time. You've already heard enough of it. But I want to move on to a few other things before we get to Justin Herbert and before we get to the rest of the podcast. So, Paul, as I said, we're at the precise halfway point of this season. And, and let's put aside just for a moment the fact that uh, we just had the weirdest Sunday that any of us can remember. You know, the Denver Broncos being up on the Cowboys 30 to nothing. Uh, the Bills going to Jacksonville and not scoring a touchdown and losing to the Jaguars. There's so many things that were weird about that. But I want to just take a quick look ahead. And I, I want to, I just want to ask you your headline for the second half of the season and what you think is going to be a big story. I'll give you mine, but you take yours first. When you look at the second half of the season, what do you think is going to end up being huge? My eyes go to the AFC, where the Kansas City Chiefs and the fact that they're struggling right now really left the door wide open and one that we didn't expect to be open at this point. I mean, all the preseason discussion about the AFC was chasing the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, that's exactly what it's been the last two or three seasons. There was no reason to think it was going to be anything different this season. Well, now the Chiefs have come way back to the middle of the pack. And you look at these teams that are a couple of games above 500, maybe even three or four games above 500 in the AFC, 
that are trying to pursue that spot. It's so elusive to take the reins and hang on in the AFC to fill that void left by the Chiefs. I mean, two weeks ago, the Cincinnati Bengals were the number one seed. They've lost a couple of times since. It's easy to go to the Buffalo Bills and say, oh, that's the best team. You watch in the last two weeks, I mean, are they really? So this wide open race to take over the spot as the top team in the AFC, uh, to me, has a lot of intrigue. And there are great quarterback stories within each one of the teams that are really trying to grab it. My eyes are on Ryan Tannehill and the Titans. I mean, the way they won the game Sunday, very respectable, a lot of toughness. Uh, you know, they earned that win, but they can't win that way every weekend. And now without Derrick Henry, is Ryan Tannehill going to go from nice player, really good compliment on a really good team, to being like an MVP type candidate who takes that number one seed and hangs on to it these next two months with his play alone, not just leaning on the running game. So uh, that AFC chase for number one and whatever team you latch onto and say, that's my favorite one. Uh, to me, that that's a headline. I can't wait to see play out. I'll give you mine. And originally I was going to talk about the chiefs, but there's such, there's such an obvious story about what's going to happen to them in the second half. Who knows? They might rebound and win a very muddled AFC West. But I'm going to give you another one, and that is how weird would the prospect of an Arizona-Tennessee Super Bowl be? I have to tell you, there cannot be one person who before this year, I'd like to see if so, who predicted Arizona and Tennessee to meet in the Super Bowl. And I'm not saying they will. All I'm saying is, you know, Paul, the Arizona Cardinals to me are an amazing, amazing story from the coach on down. And, and I'll start by saying that if you look at the NFL after nine weeks, there are zero undefeated teams, which is not stunning, okay? One out of 32 teams, only one, has one loss. Everyone else has two or more. That team with one loss, the Arizona Cardinals. What impresses me so much about the Cardinals, and I wrote about this on Monday, is the roster depth. Two of the most important players now in them being eight and one right now, believe it or not, are Marcus Golden, who they got for a song in a trade from the New York Giants last year, and then Colt McCoy. Colt McCoy goes to San Francisco in a game the 49ers had to have. In a game that Colt McCoy is not positive he's gonna play. You know, and he goes out and plays and plays exceedingly well. They put 31 points on the board, a tremendous effort by them. And to me, I love watching the Cardinals play right now because in my opinion, they can be both explosive and they're good enough running the ball. You know, with James Conner, who was sort of uh, given up on because of all his injuries in Pittsburgh, Signed in Arizona, and he has been absolutely what the doctor ordered. Three touchdowns in San Francisco. But I look at the Cardinals right now, and what interests me so much is how it can be a different guy almost every week. I really like what I see out of the Cardinals. Let's move on, and, and I'm going to just ask you my one other question that coming out of the games on Sunday uh, just really... Uh, interests me and then on Monday it, it there was more news and that is the Las Vegas Raiders in the span of six days 
they basically fired both first round picks from 2020. The, the Raiders had two picks in the top 20. Henry Ruggs at number 12 and Damon Arnett at number 19. And both of those guys are, have now been fired, both for really reprehensible, despicable actions. Obviously, Henry Ruggs was involved in a, a car accident in which he was driving way too fast on the city streets of Vegas and killed uh, a woman uh, and basically incinerated uh, the woman in her car. Uh, there was a fireball after he hit her car. And then on Monday, after it was deemed that Damon Arnett had made an extremely disturbing video, what person in his right mind would have an automatic weapon in his hand and be saying that he was going to kill somebody with it after somebody criticized his football ability on social media. I mean, you know, so there's a lot of people who look bad here. The, the personnel team of John Gruden and Mike Mayock, they don't look very good. Now, you can argue that the Henry Ruggs thing, who could have seen that coming? He made a horrendous mistake uh, and is going to go to prison and deservedly so. But the Damon Arnett thing, there were all sorts of red flags on him <coughs> coming out of Ohio State. And Paul, I guess I would just ask this because this, I went to the game on Sunday in the Meadowlands where the Raiders lost to the Giants. And after everything that has happened to this team with the personnel stuff, uh, the incredible uh, shock of the Henry Ruggs situation, the, the quote resignation of John Gruden a month ago, everybody post game, said, oh, that doesn't matter. That doesn't have any, it's not a factor in why we lost this game. The only thing that's going to matter is how we play on the field. I guess I would just ask you, as somebody who has played this game, I wonder, do things like that matter to players when they show up for practice after the events that happen have happened? I think you can also point to, Peter, to, to your point, you know, a few weeks ago, right after the Gruden news came out, uh, the Raiders had a really poor performance then as well, you know, and they lost this weekend after all the events had happened. So uh, I don't think you can say it doesn't matter. And I understand that coaches and players will come out of the media and say it doesn't matter uh, because that's what they would like for the reality to be. And that's what they want people to think. But it does matter. I don't think it has to take over, though. What can take over is winning a game in a row, winning a couple of games, you know, beating the Chiefs on Sunday night. If they win that game, and they're in this division where every team right now has five wins and it's so even, and there are real flaws of different kinds with every single one of those teams in the AFC West. If they win there in a few days, that's the feeling inside that building now is like, maybe we're the best team in this division. We just knocked off Mahomes and the Chiefs. So it, it, it can be fleeting. I think it's a real thing, that feeling. They can deny it all they want, but I think it's there. But they can make it go away with a big win or two. And if you look at their schedule coming up, uh, with the exception of the Washington football team, they're only playing teams that are fighting for playoff positioning and fighting for their playoff lives. So I think they will quickly get back into the, the emotions of being on the field and trying to win really tough games because the, the schedule kind of demands that's where they're going to have to be. Paul, I, uh, I thought it would be good in our remaining couple of minutes 
if we just hit three topics briefly. And the first one is, I'm going to pick one, you're going to pick one. Give me your team that's going to emerge as a surprise in the second half of the season. I'm building off of one of the lines you wrote in your, your article on Monday, Peter. You mentioned that because seven teams will make the playoffs in the NFC, there might very well be a team that makes the postseason with a losing record. So I looked at all the teams without winning records right now that I wanted to, to say, okay, this is going to be my surprise team. Give me the Atlanta Falcons. I love the way Matt Ryan played on Sunday. And I'm just really into the fact that Cordero Patterson is playing running back and wide receiver. Their defense isn't any good. I mean, their defense may rule them out here. Uh, but watching 36-year-old Matt Ryan make a run at one more postseason and seeing all the, way, all the ways they use Cordero Patterson, I'm excited to watch them and see how they finish out. So that's my surprise team. My surprise team will be New England. Now, I'm not maybe people think, well, that isn't a surprise. They've won three in a row. But it is how they have won three in a row. Uh, and part of that is allowing only 14 points a game to the Jets, Chargers, and Panthers, two of those games on the road. And I think what interests me in the second half of the season is that, you know, there are two New England-Buffalo showdowns in a three-week span in December, and I'm, I think those potentially uh, obviously could be really, really terrific. But the other thing about New England is the schedule is manageable. After they have Cleveland, Atlanta, and Tennessee in the next three weeks, then they go into that Buffalo uh, you know, segment of the schedule. They finish with Jacksonville at home and then at Miami. And so I think if the, if the Patriots are close near the end, they're going to be able to uh, finish up uh, playing very well. I think the other thing is Mac Jones, you know, so far, you know, through one half of one season, he's the best rookie quarterback who was drafted. So, and you know, is that going to last? I don't know, but I'm very encouraged for the Patriots that they have a quarterback who's not playing like a rookie and every other quarterback who is, you know, who's playing right now is rookies. You see, still see a lot of rookie stuff in them i want to ask you the last two points number one the surprise of adrian peterson kind of being reborn in tennessee and when i was preparing my column this week i looked up a bunch of stuff about adrian peterson and most interesting thing other than the fact that the first game he ever played in the nfl the vikings won and the losing coach was bobby petrino which just really kind of takes you way back in time but the other thing that interested me a lot is that Peterson is a rookie made the Pro Bowl and played in the Pro Bowl and one of the players chasing him on the field that day at Aloha Stadium was a linebacker named Mike Vrabel well mm -hmm. Mike Vrabel is now coaching Adrian Peterson and uh, <laughs> Peterson scored the 125th touchdown of his career uh, on Sunday against the Los Angeles Rams. And he did that with Mike Vrabel at his coach, as his coach. So I don't know. The future, I have no idea what the future says about a 35-year-old running back, Adrian Peterson. But the story right now is pretty damn good. 
I think it's really cool. It, it, it's his name on the back of that jersey. You know, that's going to be doing a lot of the running for Tennessee. But strictly football-wise, I'm excited to see how Tennessee stays committed to that running game. And there are teams that are getting it done. They're, they're not really dominating or anywhere near it running the football, but they've stayed committed. They get the rushing attempts. Mac Jones is benefiting from that in New England a lot. I look at Baltimore outside of Lamar running the ball. They've got some players that are, uh, as I like to say, in the back nine of their careers, they're keeping the offense on schedule because they stay committed to getting the rushing attempts. I don't think Peterson will have big numbers, but, but if they can get him double-digit carries every single game, I think that bodes really well for how Tannehill can play and if the Titans uh, can hang on to that number one spot they own right now. The last thing we'll touch on, Paul, is the Seattle Seahawks. They're three and five. They will get Russell Wilson back for the show down in Green Bay, probably against Aaron Rodgers, but Rodgers will have to test negative for COVID on Saturday before he's allowed to play in this game. You assume he will, but we'll see. Um, the It's what's going to be really, really hard for Seattle. And, and look, they lost three of the four games um, you know, in, uh, since Russell Wilson got hurt. He got hurt in the middle of that first loss against the Rams. And in total, they've lost three of the four games in which Geno Smith played. So now he comes back. And what's really tough, Paul, is their first two games when they come out of the box at Green Bay and then Arizona at home before their schedule gets a little bit humane. But I'll ask you this. At three and five, how do you view the Seattle Seahawks the rest of this year? If I didn't know that we were going to talk about them at this point of the podcast, Peter, I would have picked them for my surprise team just because they have Russell Wilson coming back. And he's the one guy, doesn't matter who the other 10 are out there, doesn't matter who the other 11 are on his defense. You just always get the feeling that they're right there and that they're going to win more games that they shouldn't than vice versa as long as Russell Wilson is playing. So if they can get to four and six, Peter, if they can in the next two weeks go from three and five and survive this Packers and Arizona part of their schedule and win one of those games, I would not rule them out at all if number three is healthy to be that last team in the NFC still standing in January. Yeah, I think, and Paul, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but you tell me after Dallas, Green Bay, Tampa Bay, New Orleans, Arizona and the Rams. That's six teams, six teams right there. And we all look at it right now and we think those teams are probably going to make the playoffs. But then out of all the teams that are either right around 500 or under 500, you picked Atlanta. The question is, who's going to be that last playoff team? Who's going to be the team that'll be fed to the Wolves who's going to have to either go to Lambeau and beat Aaron Rodgers, uh, you know, in a frigid game or go to Dallas and, and beat the Cowboys. I mean, who's going to actually be good enough to go and beat the number two seed? Uh, I don't know that there's any team, but I probably, if I had to pick one right now, I'd probably pick Seattle and we shall see. You got, you got Atlanta, I'll take Seattle. But it'd be really interesting the rest of the way to see if, uh, Seattle can make up ground uh, in the last nine games of their season. So, Paul, thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to uh, pivot right now to my guest, 
And uh, Paul, thanks so much. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I have a charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Much for joining me again this week. Thank you. Back on the podcast with Calais Campbell, uh, the defensive end of the Baltimore Ravens. And Calais, I, I really want to start by uh, by talking a little bit about how do you still play at a high level when you're age 35? And I think more and more we're seeing in football Obviously, it's headlined by Tom Brady continuing to kill people when he's 44. Um, but I just wonder, when you look at your career, your age, how do you keep it up at a high level at age 35? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time and uh, resources on taking care of my body. You know, uh, I mean, my wife gets a little, uh, sometimes I have, to, I have to give her a good date night because uh, pretty much every day I'm doing, you know, working with different people, doing, uh, you know, active, active release therapy, um, you know, get massages, dry needling, acupuncture, you know, just going through the whole shebang of ways to try to feel as good as I can feel so I can get, you know, to Sunday and feel great. And it's a process, you know, it takes a lot of time, but um, I love I love the game. So, uh, you know, I, I make all the sacrifices, you know, um, and uh, do all I can so I can go out there and, and ball out. Can you give me an example of what the day after a game is like for you? Give me an idea from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. What do you do to take care of yourself? Yeah, uh, well, I try to sleep as long as possible after a game. So, so sometimes it's hard to. Um, <clears throat> and this year we had, we have a lot more. We had a lot more night games than other years. So some of those games you're getting home so late that you just try to sleep as long as possible. Uh, but um, first thing I do is um, I have um, a guy that comes in and works on my body and just uh, kind of whatever nicks and bruises that popped up, we just kind of work through and just kind of um, do like uh, some kind of um, physical therapy for whatever injury I have. And then I usually do uh, dry Do you do that in, in your house? Yeah, in my house, yes. Okay. I have, uh, come through. I have like a room downstairs that's like a recovery room, um, you know, with a table and all that stuff set up. So uh, when people come in, we can work, you know, I have all the tools that, you know, people need. So sometimes I have people come from out of town, um, you know, that are specialists that I've dealt with in years past and people I've worked with for years. That way um, they know my body, they know how I'm supposed to feel. So it's not like somebody trying to get used to you again. 
and um, you know, uh, just making sure that uh, everything is firing and moving the way it's supposed to. Uh, then I get a, you know, usually like a three-hour massage. Um, you know, I soak in some Epsom salt, and then I usually uh, soak in the cold tub um, for another, you know, usually about 20 minutes each for both of those. Um, usually get in the sauna, try to sweat out all those bad toxins and stuff. Uh, and then just make sure I'm eating real good and just like, re like putting in a lot of good fluids and electrolytes in my system. Um, but everything's calculated, you know, uh, it's, it's a process. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy because every week is the exact same week. The, re the routine does not change. Based off, I mean, sometimes with, uh, uh, you know, Monday night game, Thursday night game, it changes a little bit, but the variation is the same uh, for every normal week. And so um, it's, a, it's a process, but, uh, you know, it's, it's working. And, you know, it's been good for me my whole career. Last year was the only year I didn't have to, my, my, my setup uh, during the COVID year, and that, uh, that definitely took a toll on me. That, that year was very tough. But, did you um, test positive for COVID last year? I did. Yeah. And you missed you missed four games because of it, or what happened? Yeah, I missed four games. Uh, but how how well, bad did it hit you? Well, but but I also had a calf injury, too, so it wasn't oh, just did. COVID. So COVID hit me hard, but uh, it only hit me hard for about like six, uh, about five or six days. And then once I recovered, I felt it, but it wasn't enough to keep me from playing. Uh, I also... Um, it was uh, the calf injury, but I think also COVID because I got COVID while I, while I had an injury. And I think it made, it made it took me a lot longer to heal because of that. Uh, but it was just a unique year, man. It, it was tough, you know, uh, uh, late in the season. But once I once I got to the playoffs, I finally felt like myself again, and uh, you know, we, we gave it our best shot. You know, it's crazy because you know the ultimate goal was to win the Super Bowl, and we got felt like we were in a good position and just you know didn't go away. Um, I wonder when you. When you got COVID and you were suffering with it, did you sort of understand what all the fuss was about and what everybody was talking about with COVID? Did it hit you that hard? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, when I got it, I was like, man, like, um, you know, the first day I didn't really feel as much until like late. And then like when it hit me, it hit me hard. And I, I was like, man, I, I hope nobody has to go through this because like, I mean, it was the worst sickness I've ever had. You know, um, I mean, the only time I really felt worse is when my, my, I had appendicitis, my, my appendix burst. And, um, and th that was the only time I could really feel like I felt worse in my life. But, you know, that was the most circus sickness I ever had. How long did, how long did it last? Uh, with, with COVID, uh, it was pretty much like where it was the worst, like, sickness I ever had for five days. Uh, you know how when you're, like, sick, you could just watch TV, listen to some music or whatever. You just kick back. You try to, you know, like, I couldn't even watch TV. It hurt so bad. I couldn't, you know, I, I didn't want to just try to sleep as much as possible. And uh, load up on like the you know the the, the drugs uh, the prescription meds they gave us uh, that uh, they, they tried to help with some of that but even then it really was just like man just try to sleep sleep through the pain. Did you have any problems with your heart with myocarditis, which some people, especially some athletes, have had? No, when when we got back, we did all the testing, um, and my tests were were pretty good. Uh, you know, I did have asthma. I do have asthma. So I was worried about, uh, you know, some having some issues in my lungs and in my heart uh, with inflammation in that area. Uh, but uh, during that process, uh, I was monitoring, I was monitored and uh, I was able to, you know, uh, just I, that wasn't too bad. It was really just the, uh, the, the aching and the pain, but my heart and everything was fine. So the other thing that really I think is kind of interesting about your career, especially recently, is that after the 2019 season, you had a very good year with Jacksonville. You were the top rated 
uh, 3-4 defensive end in the league. And even though you were, whatever, 33 years old. And I found it really, really interesting that the Jaguars at that time chose to trade you to Baltimore. And I have many questions about this, but what really interests me a lot about the trade is that you were traded for a fifth round draft choice, okay, after having the season that you had. And that fifth round draft choice ended up becoming a safety uh, for Jacksonville. It was the 157th pick in the draft. Guy's name is Daniel Thomas. And in the first five weeks of this season, I think, Daniel Thomas played one snap for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I, I, first of all, I'm just curious. When you heard about the trade, did you think to yourself, a fifth-round pick, that's all I'm worth? <laughs> what went through your mind? Yeah, um, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a student of the game, and so I know that, you know, players over 30 don't usually get traded for much more than, you know, a fourth, fifth-round pick, um, you know, too often. And so, like, I guess I figured that was going to be the case uh, when, it, when, it, when it came through, but I was uh, kind of feeling like, man, I feel like, I'm, I feel like if you can get – you can draft a guy today – uh, you know, in the fifth round, you know, I feel like, you know, 99% of the time, I'm probably going to be a better player than for the first, you know, next three, four years, in my opinion, uh, maybe even longer uh, you know, in that moment where I was thinking. And so I feel like, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I feel like even the first round pick, you know, I feel like I, I can outplay a first round pick, you know, majority of the time, a high majority of the time. And so I felt like, uh, you know, anytime you get traded and you realize that, you know, it's for a fifth round pick, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's humbling, you know, I would say humbling. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's just the nature of the business. The future, uh, you know, is is always the, the main goal. And, you know, there are some great players that come in the fifth round. You know, you get, you know, Hall of Fame type players in the fifth round, you know, it's just, if you draft right. So, you know, uh, I guess the, the potential of it is always what makes it worth it. But I definitely felt a certain kind of way, just naturally. Um, but I know that's the nature of the business. Did you uh, did you request a trade, or did it come oh. out of left field? Yeah, I was surprised. Um, you know, um, you know, I mean, outside world, you know, I feel like they talk about trading me pretty much every year, cutting me every year. Uh, I was there, <clears throat> but internally, they've always told me they like me. Uh, you know that uh, they, you know, that we have a you know, I mean, we even talked about a, a extension a couple times. Um, and our, after like year year one and year two, talking about maybe at the end of this deal we might be able to you know keep you here longer. Uh, so I was kind of surprised by it, but at the same time, um, you know it was one of those things where I felt like uh, you know uh, Dave Codwell, who was a GM at the time, when he called me, he was pretty much saying like, "Hey, sir, we're getting offers on you from a lot of people, uh, and where we're at right now and uh, where you're at, we feel like it makes sense for us to trade you." Um, he said, "I think it'd be good for both of us," and he said that. Um, uh, that uh, uh, Baltimore is the team that we agreed to trade you to right now. I said, but if it's not Baltimore, uh, it will be somebody else because Baltimore wanted to do a contingent on a, a deal being done, reworking my contract. And so uh, he said, if it's not Baltimore, it'll be somebody else. Uh, but we'll give you uh, three days to work out a deal with Baltimore. And then um, um, after, after that, you, you know, if it works out great, if not, then, uh, you know, it'll be somebody else. Like, okay. You know what? I, you know what I really remember about you in Jacksonville in 2019. I was in the Jaguars training camp, 
and you saw me there and you brought Josh Allen over, the young pass rusher, obviously the seventh pick in the draft. And you brought him over to introduce him to me to basically say, hey, this guy's going to be good in this league for a long time. You should get to know him. And I always thought, I always think of like a mentor type guy, which is what you were to Josh Allen. How did you get to feel that way? And how did you get to play that role? Uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, I grew up with five brothers. So, so I think it's kind of just uh, naturally in me, like when my like brothers were, you know, I mean, I've had so much help from my brothers and, uh, you know, my younger brothers giving all my knowledge and sharing information. That's kind of how we are. And then uh, when I was young in the league, you know, I had Larry Fitzgerald, um, you know, and a bunch of other guys too that helped along the way. But Larry probably the most, um, you know, who was able to kind of, you know, kind of you know, pull me aside and, you know, and, and give me some reassurance, tell me I'm doing things the right way, you know, kind of give me some advice on some other things I can do better. And, uh, you know, he's just a big brother when it came to stuff outside of football and even in football too, on just the, the work ethic and things I need to do, taking care of my body stuff like that. And so, I mean, you know, when you're young, you just don't know, you know, and you have to kind of be exposed to uh, a way of life to, you know, have longevity in this, in this, in this game. And so, um, you know, I, I think after all the knowledge I accumulated over the years, I feel like it would be injustice to the game and, and just uh, to the people around me if I didn't share that. So, you know, I take great pride, always have, you know, even when I was in Arizona as a, you know, my seventh, eighth and ninth year, you know, I started kind of really trying to become that uh, big brother to a lot of the young players that I saw that had real potential. Uh, you know, I would give everybody advice, but especially the ones I saw that had real, real potential. And, uh, and it just kind of carried over the rest, the rest of my career. I mean, I mean, I, I take great pride in really helping the young guys keep the game strong. As, uh, as they used to tell me back in the day, you know, you know uh, I'm protecting the pension, protecting my pension. You know, the, the old players used to give me knowledge. So I got to protect the pension, man. I got to keep you good so the game is strong. If you left one thing with Josh Allen for his future, tell me what it was. Man, uh, well, that's tough because uh, there's so many different things I feel like we talked through. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, when it comes to like football, I, you know, I try to make sure he understood because, you know, sometimes when you're gifted like he is, you know, he can, you know, the players can kind of relax and get comfortable, you know, and I think, um, you know, one of the things I really tried to make sure he understood is, is that like for order for anybody to be the very best, you got to outwork everybody else in the league. So however hard, you know, Miles Garrett's working, however hard, you know, all the great players that play his position are working, Joey Bosa, you know, all the great players that play his position, you know, the Von Millers, it's like, you got to outwork them. You, you got to make sure whatever you're doing off season, during the season, watching tape, preparing for a game, you know, because hard work's the only way. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just from a football perspective, I think is, is probably the number one, you know, rule of thumb when it comes to trying to be a great player in this league is, you know, I mean, you could be as talented as ever, but talent only gets you so far. It's gotta, you gotta be the hardest working person. And I feel like that's really when my career took off, you know, um, when I was in, uh, I think it was year seven, you know, I was frustrated. I was like, I never made a Pro Bowl. I felt like I was worthy of Pro Bowls and I didn't get one yet. I was, I think in year six, I was um, uh, uh, alternate and alternate, then I started, yeah. Yeah, and then I started thinking to myself, like, but are you really putting your all into this, you know? And I worked hard. I was definitely a hard worker. But then it was just like, you know, I, I elevated my game to say, okay, I want to make sure I'm outworking the J.J. Watts, you know, and, uh, you know, the other good players in this league. And I knew that I was like, okay, I don't know what they do in the workout. I have talked to, you know, over the years, we, you know, become friends. You start talking to them, getting a feel for what they do working out-wise. 
Uh, but you know, I don't know what they're doing working out wise, but I'm gonna push myself to a level where, you know, they either be equal to me or less than me. They can't be more. And so that was the message I kind of sent to all the guys, you know, Josh Allen and then uh, the kid Odafe we got here. Um, you know, it's just uh, the hardest working person in the building is the one who gets to, you know, to be the guy. And, you know, everybody wants to be the guy. So, but on top of that, man, just, uh, you know, just, and, and then, you know, I mean, the basic, you know, family stuff, you know, you know, I feel like sometimes in this world, uh, you know, uh, you know, you get into this position and you got to, Know, growing up, you know, you got to absorb all your family's problems. You know, everybody comes to you when they have an issue. And I was like, man, just, you know, uh, you know, try to find somebody you could depend on, you know, that can, can be a guy you can help you help other people. Um, but you definitely got to bring people along, but it's a balance, you know, just making sure that you don't let all their stresses pull mm -hmm. you down, stuff like that. But I mean, there's probably a lot of things I can go through, but, uh, yeah. you know, there's a couple. Calais, tell me, um, you know, most people who will listen to this have never had an instance in their life where they're very, very good at their job. And somebody picks up the phone one day and calls that person and says, oh, by the way, you have been traded from your company and you have no say in where you're going, but you now are going to live and do your job in Baltimore, Maryland. What is it like really to get traded and not really have any control over what is going on in your life? <laughs> yeah, it is unique. It is unique. I mean, you're, you know, you're making plans. You have all this stuff set up, you know, from just preparation for the year. And then, uh, you know, you get a call and you got to drop everything and create new plans and pick up and leave. And, you know, you married, you know, kid and, and you're like, okay, you know, uh, you know, whatever you have planned, baby, we got to change it. You know, it's, it's kind of tough, uh, uh, but um, you know, but it can, but also can be a blessing, you know, and, you know, in this particular case, you know, I, I ended up in a great place where I feel very comfortable, uh, very welcome. My wife loves Baltimore, um, you know, place we're at. She, uh, you know, um, I mean, takes the kid around in the park and everything else. And she could just tell she's very happy. So, it is, it worked out very well for us, uh, but to, to, you know, to have to go through, you know, a process where everything changes in an instant and, you know, pretty much, you know, having to move all your stuff, everything you own in that city, you know, I mean, I still got a, a storage unit in, in Jacksonville that has not been uh, shipped yet <laughs> because it's just like, you know, you just don't, you don't even know where you're going. Like, well, I came to Baltimore, I had to find a place to live, you know, uh, yeah. you know, and so there was nothing set up yet. And when I finally did, it was just a whole process, but um, it is definitely a, a challenge, but yeah. um, you know, like anything else, you just kind of, you know, make the best of it. And no matter what you can't control, things you can't control, you just, you, you know, you accept and then uh, things you can't control, you make the best of, so. I want to ask you two things about the Ravens. Number one, if I were a defensive player, I think I would really love to play in Baltimore because the tradition is so strong. The uh, there's this no excuse mentality that kind of was you know, started by Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, and I wonder. You've now been on three teams, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what is different about Baltimore 
versus other teams you've been on? And specifically, what is different about the defense? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, every place is special. You know, I feel like uh, you always kind of just, I mean, no matter where you're at, playing football is a dream come true. And, uh, you know, and it's I an mean, opportunity to live out this dream. You know, you're going to have fun doing it. Um, you know, one of the coolest things about Baltimore, I feel like, is that everybody here gets treated the same, no matter if you're an undrafted free agent, uh, first round pick, you know, the staff, everybody in the building, you know, uh, treats you the same. And then there's enthusiasm amongst the, uh, across the whole building. Everybody does a job at a high level, you know, from the people in the kitchen, people upstairs, uh, you know, all the people around you that help you. You know, I feel like there's a true passion and enthusiasm that uh, is, uh, is definitely, uh, you know, nice to see. And, uh, you know, there's people everywhere else I've been that are great people, but it just seems like the leadership here, uh, the, the way they carry themselves is, is definitely unique and special. And then um, from a standpoint of, of from, from our defense, uh, you know, uh, I mean, one thing I, they always say here that I've always appreciated, though, is we're going to lead the team in effort and we're going to lead the leading effort. You know, uh, you, you know, all the stuff with, the, you know, talent and X's and O's and all that stuff, we're going to also be good at. Uh, but effort is something that's between you and you. You only know if you're going or hard you can go. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to lead the leading effort. And then it comes down to, you know, uh, I think there's a high level of, uh, of, of, of uh, game planning where we really figure out how can we put everybody in the best position to be successful, what we have. And I think they do a really good job of bringing in the kind of guys who uh, are like coordinators. I mean, we have probably like seven, eight guys on our defense right now who could go and be defensive coordinators when they're done playing. Um, you know, and maybe even more, you know, that's just what I see so far, you know, and uh, just they take the kind of guys who are really, really intelligent and can learn on the fly so we can do a lot of stuff. But, and then, you uh, know, like I like a guy like Pernell McPhee, who was, uh, who was here um, during the, the last championship, last Super Bowl that, 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 that Baltimore has won. And, uh, you know, I always talk to him about how Ray Lewis was and uh, Ed Reed and uh, Suggs and just the guys that came before him. And, uh, you know, he kind of just, he's, he's kind of the guy who's the enforcer and establishes like that, that bond, that brotherhood, you know, that, you know, I mean, and, and you know, with, with uh, last year with COVID being the case, it was kind of hard because like this team is so much built on the camaraderie, getting together outside of the building, having that brotherhood, that bond and watching tape together, talking through things uh, together, but also just talking life and everything else, you know, and putting that, uh, you know, I mean, uh, as Pernell McPhee would say, uh, just, you know, you got to love each other, you know, you got to have that, that strong, you know, like I would do anything for you for, for the man next to me. And, you know, I feel like every team tries to have that. That's just the way it's, you know, that's the NFL camaraderie, you know, to will take you a lot further in the game. But I feel like they do a really good job here of, uh, of really just giving you the, the like the time and uh, the resources to really come together and bond. And uh, and create that, that 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 foundation you need to sacrifice for the man next to you. I want to ask you about something that happened in week five, um, and a lot of people sort of view special teams as sort of the chaos of football. And I want to find out basically how chaotic it is and how much it's planned because. Basically, and, and just for, for people who forget this or, or didn't see it, Indianapolis led you guys 25 to 17 with uh, four minutes and 37 seconds left in the game. 
and Indianapolis lined up for a 37-yard field goal. And normally, that's basically almost today just like an extra point. So very good chance that that field goal is going to be made. If that field goal is made, you're not winning the game. You're going to be behind by 11 points, four and a half minutes to go. Even if you get the ball twice, um, very unlikely that you're going to be able to come back and win. So I want you to take me into that play, and I want you to tell me how it was that you were able to block that field goal. And, and maybe more than that, what does it take to be able to do something like that just in terms of planning and scheming? Yeah. I feel like it's really two parts to it. It's the planning, the scheme, and then it's just the emotional uh, intensity of the moment. And like, um, you know, I feel like uh, in, in those moments where everything's on the line, I feel like it brings the best out of you. Always has, you know, uh, uh, for me and really for our whole team. And uh, I feel like uh, I truly believed uh, that if, if that kick was blocked, that, you know, that we had Lamar that was gonna go down there and he was gonna score, score a touchdown, get the two point conversion, we we're gonna win the ball game. And so um, earlier, you know, uh, some of the uh, field goal tries, we had uh, done some different things and I feel like we were real close to blocking it. So I knew that there was a chance. And then, um, you know, uh, in, earlier in the week, we had uh, made a change. We put uh, Broderick Washington at the Sam position, which is really outside linebacker position. Usually the guy's like, you know, 260, maybe 270 playing that position. But we put somebody who's 310, 315 pounds in that position who has a great get off and uh, just try to create some more space because you need a little space. I don't care how gifted you are, you know, you need space. And so Broderick uh, did a really good job of knocking back that, that tight end. Uh, so it made it easier for, for me to step through. And then um, we had, uh, you know, uh, I guess you could call it like a bluff, but we kind of made an inside move with the with our with our uh, tackle or three technique. So it made the kind of guard go down. He was expecting to get because earlier in the game we had uh, we I mean just double team shoulder to shoulder, um, you know two on one knocked the guard back. And so when he you know when we're in that press situation, he's worried about getting knocked back again because we almost knocked him back and blocked it before. So this time you know he makes an inside move and he's leaning leaning hard, so he ends up falling down which gave me a little more crease. And I was able to get through, get my feet down. And like, you know, I, I blocked a lot of kicks in a day, but it's been I mean, it was seven years since I blocked a kick. And I'm sitting to myself like, man, I know I'm still good at blocking kicks. It's been a while, but I, I know I could block one. And, you know, in that seven years, I got really close to blocking a few you know, where I could feel the wind of the ball go by my hand, which is the worst. Cause you know, like it was literally an inch, inch away. Uh, but, um, when uh when in this situation earlier in the you know against um earlier in the year against uh the Oakland or the Las Vegas Raiders, uh that's when I felt the win of the ball that would have won that would have won us the game when they tied it up to go to overtime and I'm like man like and I just I remember talking to this our special coach Chris Horton and he was saying that um he was like man it's okay you'll get another opportunity and we're gonna put we're gonna do some stuff to give you better opportunity to get to make that play and so then he made the adjustment to put. Uh, Roger Washington at, at Sam, you know, we did some stuff where we drew up some stuff on the inside to kind of give us a little more space in there. And uh, it felt good to go in there and get in that moment and get my, you know, get my feet through, get my hands up. And I mean, once I got the ball fast enough, I knew I was blocking it. I mean, you just, once you, get, the, the way I got the ball and I got back there, I mean, I knew I was blocking at that point in time. I was like, can I pick it up and go score? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, those, those days are probably long gone where I could scoop and score, uh, but it felt good to get the block and give my, my team a chance to, to win.
Calais Campbell, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much and uh, continued success and um, hope you play till uh, you're as old as Brady. <laughs> I don't know if I play that long, but uh, it is, it is a, a true honor to play this game. Every single day I get a chance to suit up and play it. I feel, uh, I feel like it's a, it's a dream come true. And that's it for the podcast this week. We'll be back. I have no idea what we're going to be doing next week at this time. This is a week-to-week time in the National Football League. But thanks for listening to this mid-season episode of the Peter King Podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.